the second episode of our second season in the Voices Project dialogue series. I'm Rohit Segal, Chief Strategist. The Voices Project is a neutral, independent, nonprofit platform that aims to produce deep insights and knowledge on public health issues in Asia Pacific, rooted in local circumstances, experiences, and divergences. By empowering voices, what we seek is to expand our collective understanding of how public healthcare issues take form in the region's context. Our objective this season is to lay the foundations for a regional understanding of a framework for the role of technology in life sciences. It's a critical component of uh, the UN agency's uh, sustainable development goals, particularly SDG 17. It has an entire chapter on that. So for our listeners who are interested, you should definitely have a, a good read of that. It's a critical component and possibly a horizontal for how sustainable health uh, for the future is, is, is going to take place. And by doing so, we aim to develop region-specific consensus that can be leveraged by policymakers, healthcare professionals, and actors in the private sector to better facilitate the development and rollout of MedTech in Asia. And it's by taking a continental look rather than an isolated, localized approach that we think makes a big difference. Ultimately, developing broader collaboration amongst policymakers, agenda setters, that complement and build upon existing initiatives. I'm so delighted to be joined today by two very special guests, uh, Rajiv Variani, Senior Program Consultant with the Ministry of Health Ontario, where he's responsible to plan, lead, and manage the Ontario Health Data Platform Program, an extremely challenging and I'm sure exciting uh, role. And um, uh, Dr. Karen Priyadarshini, Worldwide Lead for Health and Life Sciences, JPAC at Microsoft, Welcome to you both. As a quick introduction, I suppose uh, it's always great for our listeners to understand a little bit about our uh, guests and what their backgrounds are and what makes them tick is my favorite question. Uh, Rajiv, why don't I start with you? Sure, uh, thanks Rohit. Uh, so so uh, as, as you briefly introduced uh, me, uh, I am uh, currently a senior program consultant with uh, the Ontario Ministry of Health uh, here in Canada. Uh, so I'm managing the portfolio, which is the Ontario Health Data Platform. And my responsibilities include uh, planning as well as managing the overall portfolio. Uh, for me, healthcare is really personal. Uh, you know, for me, uh, as a patient's caregiver, so I have taken care of my parents' health for over 10 years. And that experience has helped me a lot of, helped me gain a lot of uh, empathy and understanding of the nuances and the gaps within the healthcare sector, uh, especially in the Asia market. Uh, my work also brought me very closer to the healthcare, uh, healthcare uh, uh, sector because I have worked in India, Malaysia, Singapore, as well as now in Canada, all through in the uh, medtech and life sciences and healthcare technology sector. And, and that's where I have a decent understanding of the various uh, different landscapes, how the services and the health system uh, uh, you know, plays out, and uh, and what are the key challenges, and what are the key opportunities for us to look forward to? So that's that's in a nutshell about me. Thanks, thanks, Rajiv. Uh, Karen. Yeah, thanks, <clears throat> thanks so much, Rohit. So, um, uh, good morning and good afternoon to everybody. Um, so, I'm Karen. I lead the industry healthcare industry vertical at Microsoft for JPAC. And that involves working with um, providers, payers, uh, as well as medtech uh, as part of my daily work. What we help to do is to help digitally transform our clients uh, in their journey so that you know, we can look at more equitable, better patient outcomes. Um, the other one I wanted to share was also that um, you know, at Microsoft um, and with our health industry partners, uh, we strive to achieve the goal of better health globally. And this is by offering people first solutions to uh, you know, empower organizations, patients, and care providers. Uh, and if you look at our mission as well, the mission is more towards empowering uh, our clients and organizations as well. And one of the interesting things that we did a few years ago um, during the pandemic time was to launch the Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare. Uh, and it's very interesting because though there are many cloud capabilities, what we are trying to do is to provide, equip our clients 
uh, with capabilities to the Microsoft Cloud for Healthcare to actually manage health data at scale and make it easier um, for healthcare organizations to improve uh, you know, their own patient experience, be able to coordinate care uh, among different stakeholders and still have operational uh, efficiency. But at the same time, because this involves data, which comes with its own challenges, be able to help support security, compliance, at the same time, interoperability of health data. And I'm sure we're gonna be hearing more of that today. Thanks, thanks Karen for that. In fact, that's a great segue into what the topic for this episode is gonna try and um, uh, gravitate around, and that's around personalized health. Personalized health for listeners um, is something within the health forum that's been discussed and debated for a long while now. Uh, it was always felt that either technology needed to play catch up or perhaps health policies themselves needed to become a bit more broad-based in their outlook and it would be more inclusive on how technology and the role of technology augmentation, and I think Karen just outlined a few things there, uh, would actually work. And the reason why we have Rajiv and Karen today is actually we can get a really interesting set of perspectives, uh, one coming from an area and domain experience of technology-driven solutions uh, in health, and the other right at the forefront, You know, uh, thinking about where different policies are now going to take place in a country like Canada, which is being held up as a best case practice on many, many levels. And there's many areas of cross-learning that Asia can also pick up from that. Uh, so looking forward to, I think, some very interesting uh, thoughts and concepts. Now, um, the I guess the good place to start is that today's world is obviously uh, very different uh, from not just two and a half, three years ago, but even as some say, even five or six years ago, uh, various different policies were taking shape. Uh, the disruption came along, of course, some called it a blessing in disguise for health policy and technology inclusion. Um, what would be your takeaways in terms of how things have possibly changed in terms of, well, health behaviors is one thing and one's relationship with health services. Um, Rajiv, I, maybe I start with you on that because I think you know there's some very interesting perspectives you might bring in. Sure. Yeah. So, so Rohit, I think uh, I think that's a that's a very important topic that that we're bringing right now. Let's go. Let's go three years back. Uh, imagine we are in a country like Singapore, we are in a city, uh, New Delhi, or any other part of the world, right? And one is not feeling well uh, and needs to go to a clinician. I think 95% of the time, it would be going in person to a clinic or going in person to a hospital. Now, what the pandemic has done is pandemic has transformed the world around us with the crowding of hospital beds. Uh, there was rapid exhaustion of the medical staff. We, see, we saw a clear pivot and healthcare moving outside of the hospital. There were newer care delivery models that were formed, virtual care, home care, uh, there was telehealth and so on and so forth. And what that led to is that led to us consumers starting to demand a new care delivery model at alternate sites. I think, I think not only that, uh, the consumers are also demanding seamless experience. I think, I think that's because of the other non-traditional sectors also providing a very, very, very good uh, seamless experience uh, as far as their services. For healthcare as well, consumers are demanding seamless experience. An example would be, I want to schedule an appointment very quickly. I want to see my medical records. I don't want to wait for a clinician to provide me an appointment after three weeks. So, so that's the kind of experience that I'm, that I'm talking about. Now, with that said, I certainly see a relationship with healthcare services change. Obviously, there will be more technology entrenchment that will lead to lesser physician loyalty. I would, I would say, let me take a service with a physician who's giving me an appointment in the next one hour as compared to somebody whom I've been going after, say, a week. What will that lead to is primary care physicians as well as other clinicians will start facing that competition and they will be driven to, to provide a, a lot more as compared, to, as compared to what they're doing right now. And the third thing is more ecosystem-based Providers like you have MyDoc in Singapore, you have uh, Practo in India, you have uh, a few more service providers in, as part of the ecosystem, they would play a larger role in providing services with regards to health as compared to, as compared to you know, individual silo clinicians. So that's how, that's how I see the trend shaping. 
and to 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 enable these trends i'm thinking and i'm sure that uh, the public sector the government the payers as well as other partners will start building out more policies more reimbursement model and playing their part to to make this enablement so so that's how that's how i see it I, I... I, I think I think that's a, that's that's a really interesting outline. I mean, uh, one looks at it as um, almost like a two-sided uh, perspective. The first is the benefits that personalized health obviously brings uh, to the physicality of um, you know the, a patients having to be uh, within a certain bricks and mortar environment. Um, but what's the reaction, or what would be, I guess, some of the issues that the health service providers themselves face? Uh, uh, Karen, I think you know the, we 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 touched upon this in yes in in the last episode that um, how does technology and that disruption affect the health service providers themselves, and are they ways that are maybe technologies improving that, maybe allowing for there to be a bit more of a bridging uh, between the two? Yeah, so, so Rohit, thanks so much. Um, this is actually a very, very important um, part of the whole game, right? Uh, but before we get into how, uh, what are some of the changes that we see and how they are being impacted, uh, I just want to outline, um, adding to uh, what was said earlier as well, that, you know, there, there's been the last um, three to five years, there's been so many changes and um, the whole fabric of healthcare, if I can say, has changed. Uh, and my, my personal view, I think the biggest acceleration, there are a few of them that I'd love to outline and then see how they have impacted this whole relationship, not just on the providers, but between providers and payers. And as uh, was shared earlier as well, the ecosystem play that is coming about. So I think the biggest acceleration has been also in the model of healthcare, right? Because earlier, like what, what we just shared that if somebody was sick, one would either do uh, go to the hospital or do a telemed. But now we find that, you know, care is moving from hospitals to community centers. So instead of going all the way to the hospital, you might want to use telemedicine, you know, and do the take care of yourself at home. Uh, and a, a growing, because of this, a growing number of physicians are also overcoming the barriers of time and space um, to deliver the right care um, to patients where they need it without the patients ever having to leave the comfort of their home. And this is not just within a country, but cross country. And since I speak from Singapore and we have a lot of medical tourism, you do see you know, Indonesian patients who come to Singapore and then go back, um, the doctor is able to kind of reach out to them on a regular basis as well. That's one. So I would say in a way, remote monitoring um, through smart devices, that has been a game changer as well, because, you know, now um, doctors are not just looking at data that's coming in in a periodic one to three months, but they are looking at continuous data. And that kind of also changes the way uh, you can drive patient outcomes as well. And this is where, you know, your IoT, IOMT, uh, all those kind of things come into play. And I think all along in our conversation right now, we've been talking about data and data and AI, again, have helped in converging the providers and payers, right? So uh, payers are looking at reducing the cost and providers are looking at giving the best care. So how do we kind of use data and AI to merge, uh, you know, to bring these two groups together, uh, which we haven't seen before, but we do see payers now stepping in in a very big way uh, into the whole healthcare um, scene. And then of course, we also see uh, non-healthcare uh, players like you know, tech companies like Microsoft. Uh, we also have retail firms like Walgreens Boots. Uh, we have banks uh, like um, you know, some of the major banks like HSBC as well, uh, bringing in solutions to bridge this gap in healthcare. So coming back to your question, uh, I think that when you talk about the impact I think there are a few. One, of course, is in terms of the technology capabilities that are being built, but also the relationship, which means uh, how do uh, the number of players and types of players that are coming in into this whole healthcare game, uh, which are not just healthcare players. And thirdly, I think which is super interesting is that hospitals are going to change. Uh, you know, when I say hospitals are going to change, it's not just uh, the system, but the structure, the way they are built the smart hospitals in a way that they're going to be the care, the last mile care or the last end care, right? Care is gonna be taken care of at uh, your community centers uh, with your general physicians who are closer to you. 
And that totally changes the whole model in which healthcare is being developed. And so I think that would impact the economic models. Uh, it would impact the way care is given. But all along, um, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, patient has becoming demanding and patient is the one who's going to be in the center and be benefited. So I think uh, these are very interesting times and uh, things are kind of shaking up, if I can say a bit. <laughs> now, electronic health records, um, clearly an essential part of solving health services. Um, There's the struggle with patient load, the time, the costs. Uh, there are still countries, in many countries that are still struggling in converting the analog manual method of managing health records uh, and converting that into something which is more easily accessible. Uh, for listeners who um, perhaps aren't too uh, aware of EHRs, that's the electronic health record system that many governments are now prioritizing as a way to enable uh, management of disease and access to care and so on. Um, but there's things that used to be talked about with EHRs, such as privacy issues or you know, the uh, necessary resourcing and the training and the infrastructure. Um, Rajiv, how, is, how are EHRs in, let's say, in the Canadian context, uh, perhaps working or coming through this? And honestly speaking, is privacy still an issue or is that just something which, you know, is sort of old memories still coming through? No, sure, sure. So, so at, a, at, a, at, a, at a broad level, right? So you asked me two questions. One is how is EHR uh, adoption and transformation, especially in our market here, and then whether, whether privacy is still a barrier or an issue? So I'll, I'll, I'll address the first one first. So, so when it comes to EHR, I think, I think uh, the, the adoption of EHR in our market has been, has been uh, I would say, uh, 7 on 10 at this point, uh, especially in a few provinces which are way ahead as compared to the other ones. So we have 10 provinces of which three, three or four have been much ahead of the curve. And uh, one of the key themes uh, when it comes to the motivation and the reasoning behind adoption of EHR and digital health, subsequent digital health technologies is that there are healthcare organizations uh, where the patients start managing their, their treatment, their care, and their overall rehabilitation. And while the patients are moving from one facility to another, there are there are integration issues there are gaps in care where they fall into the crack and that leads to further issues so that has been a, a, a challenge like any other market we are also facing that challenge where you have healthcare systems where there are gaps and integration of care is something that is a high priority for the various various uh, you know, provincial governments as well as the federal government so when it comes to integration of care EHR plays a plays a plays a huge role uh, to, to allow that integration of care uh, from a perspective that 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 allows uh, the patient data to flow freely that allows the clinician in uh, in, 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 in the respective uh, uh, organization to have access to the patient uh, health information and it also allows the patient to have access to their individual records as well as their uh, overall data points. So, so, so at this point, I would say there is a lot of push, a lot of focus on bringing that, that push around adoption of uh, EHRs as well as digital health records. Now, when it comes to the privacy, right? Now, now privacy is again, a, a very broad topic. Uh, it depends upon the use case that we are speaking about. Now, for example, if the data, which is a patient private data, now, if it is only relevant for the specific care for a patient, and it is uh, it is only considered for the health information custodians, which is the hospital, the GPs, or any of the long-term care site. So it is usually assumed implied consent to collect, store, as well as share the information. So it is the circle of care. So in that particular use case, I don't see privacy as an issue, although, although there needs to be a governance, but when it comes to usage of patient private data, uh, you know, from potential of utilizing those large health data sets for creating certain tools, AI models or related capabilities where the information will be utilized for maybe certain commercial purpose, uh, certain patient care purpose. In that case, there needs to be a clear model, clear reasoning behind why that data set is being used, why 
what is the leverage of patient data privacy that has been implemented so obviously obviously there is a lot of talk about the patient data privacy and here is where governance plays a big role to enable these use cases right so so patient data privacy is an issue but it depends upon the use case and governance plays a big important role to enable those use cases hmm. karen let me spin that question slightly differently for you yeah. um, I, I think the way that you referred to it earlier that the approach would be primary care community level care being almost at the front line and the last mile coming towards where the specialist care etc needs to be which makes tremendous sense EHR is therefore, as Rajiv just outlined, from a governance perspective, how, would that would that struggle in terms of just the complexity of the mm -hmm. various different infrastructures, or in fact, is that part of the solution? Actually, being able to bridge all of these different care points together. Yeah. So, um, so that's a very nice way to spin that question, <laughs> Rohit. The answer is the second. Yes. Um, so, as uh, Rajiv very beautifully outlined the problems. Um, I think um, one of the reasons, of course, these, these communities will not go away, right? Your primary, secondary, tertiary, they're going to be there. And EHR, um, I probably want to take a slightly different angle. So EMR, EHR, if you look at, uh, let's say, about 15 years ago or 10 years ago, they were the whole point of truth. What that means is if you talk about a person's health, all you need to do is to look at the health record, right? And it's even better, I'm sure the same uh, Rajiv in Canada, but in Singapore, the day you're born, you know, you start getting into the EMR right from your vaccination, date of birth, right till the day you die. So it's a very wholesome, complete record. But then come COVID and even before COVID, there were rumblings and mumblings, right? And what began is this whole interesting journey on IoT and IOMT, where you started not just getting data every three months, but you're getting data points, five to six data points every day. Now, for a diabetic patient, this is a boon. For a cancer patient, this is a boon. For any other disease, blood pressure, I want to know whether it's high or low, and I don't have the time to keep measuring with the, you know, with the uh, Omicron uh, meter. So these smart wearables have really revolutionized uh, health. Now you have on one end your, you know, your big bulky uh, mammoth EMR. On the other side, you have this nimble, agile IoT, IOMT, and somewhere the two, have, the two twain have to meet, right? And this is where, as what Rajiv beautifully outlined, we're looking at interoperability right how do you bring these data sets together because if you begin to integrate them let me tell you it was going to take you not less than a decade to integrate these pieces so this is where you know tech firms um, have come together to sign what is called the fire standard where we call fast healthcare interoperability resources where that is fhir we pronounce it as fire where we're saying how can each of these systems talk to each other so just to give you an example, uh, Microsoft has got teams which we use for telemedicine and for calls. And the way we are looking at interoperability is that when a doctor is doing a telemed um, call, he or she can see the EMR. He or she can look at, at the same screen, be able to look at the DICOM images, you know, your CD scan, your X-rays. Uh, at the same time, be also any lab reports that come in and any smart wearable data, you know, your continuous monitoring data. But again, this is a lot of information and you know, doctors just have seven to 15 minutes and then superimpose that with AI and ML. So it kind of crunches all that data together, gives broad insights to lead the doctor. Hey, these could be some of the things that you might wanna look at. So that's where this whole interoperability comes in because you're never ever gonna be able to have a seamless system. The simple reason is the complexity of healthcare. It's not like your banking, it's not like retail. Human body itself is so complex and the systems are so complex. You just have to kind of look at it. It's so beautifully made that you're never gonna have one beautiful system and say, oh, I've got to get everything in. So the only way is to be interoperable. And I think Rajiv, you mentioned this in the beginning as the ecosystem, right? So this is where we are saying, how do we get all this data from the different ecosystem players in a very interoperable way? And you might wonder what's the end goal of doing all this, you know, mumbo jumbo. The, the end goal is better patient outcomes, being able to coordinate care. So there are fewer errors. 
I'm not sure long ago, I read one of these articles that 67% of deaths that happen uh, on the, in the operating theater is not because of the disease, but because of error. So that's where you're looking at care coordination. You're looking at minimizing errors. Um, you're able to kind of remove the uh, ambiguity out of the whole thing by being able to plan out. Uh, simple example is, I'm digressing here, but simple example is a HoloLens that Microsoft has given where it's like a, a flight simulator. Even before the actual operate, operation takes place, you're able to pre-plan the whole thing. So there's no ambiguity, there's no you know, surprises that uh, await you. So that's where I think is the way to go, be able to, and also medical devices, not to forget. So is there a plug and play? You know, hospitals, sometimes doctors complain, I have a G system, I have a Philips system, I have a Siemens system. Oh, you know, kind of getting all this together is a nightmare. So that is where I think the key is interoperability. How can I use APIs to just plug and play irrespective of what device I use, right? So I think that's where the push should be. But then, of course, this whole question that you asked about, you know, data privacy, I think you said data privacy, data confidentiality, because data is not going to grow exponentially. You weren't able to solve the problem when we were at EMR, EHR. Now it's 10 times more data that you're looking at. And I think I agree with um, Rajiv when he said that, um, you know, it depends on the use case. Now that becomes a bit complex because, you know, you have so many countries and you tell them, oh, tell me what use case it is and then I'll decide. So what at Microsoft, what we normally push forward is we say, look at your data and classify that data. Now, what does that mean? Some data in some countries, especially in Asian, uh, this thing uh, like your EMR core medical records are sacrosanct. Oh, that is something that you have to really keep private because you don't want your employers looking at it. You don't want your payers looking, understandable. But there are so many layers of data. You know, when you look at IoT, IOMT data, you're looking at footsteps data. You're looking at sleep data. How long do you sleep? There are a lot of other parameters which are not so critical. So can I kind of classify the level of sensitivity to a slightly different level where we're able to take this data to the cloud? Of course, it's all anonymized. You are never able to be able to identify, oh, this data belongs to Rajiv, this belongs to Rohit. No, no, no. In the cloud, all patient data is anonymized. But having said that, these kind of data can be moved to the cloud and you can do the analytics, which is what we really have to do. We have to take this data, not just collect it, which is what we're doing now, but be able to make sense of it so that you give it back to the patient who's contributing that data, right? So that's the whole aim. But right now, I think we're holding a lot of data and saying, oh, this is very private. This you cannot share, right? But there are layers of that that you can share and give back to um, the patient. A simple thing like patient screening, right? We all go for corporate screenings and things like that. That data, you can build an AI model to say, hey, what's your risk of a cardiac attack? We worked with Apollo Hospital. They have a beautiful cardiac risk score. You don't have to do anything much. When you come in for your health screening, the model will run on that data. You know, health screening, You do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you dance? Do you do this? All that sort of a thing. And then use that to just assess the risk of uh, cardiac failure because people now have heart attacks in their 40s, 30s. 20s, even in less than 20. So this is what I feel has to be the, the knit in the healthcare. How do you get different players to come and work together in an interoperable way? Uh, at the same time, maintain privacy and compliance for sure. Uh, but there are so many um, technologies that are now available. We just have to open our eyes to look at it. One of the things I want to just close by saying is we recently launched the Azure Health Data Services. You can actually look at it where what we're saying is, give tools in the hands of hospitals, give the tools in the hands of government and regulators so that, you know, you can, you can say, hey, I want to make my data anonymous. Okay, here's the one. I want to bring in my DICOM. So we have an API for DICOM images, whatever be your system, EMR system, you can pull in your DICOM images with that, with that API. So APIs are going to be the way that we're going to go forward with. Uh, Rajiv, I know you're going to have to want, want to comment to that because I think that's that's tremendously close to where you are. But again, let me now spin a slightly different approach back to you, Rajiv, exactly where uh, Karen was just coming from. That is it is it easier said than done in the terms of public and private competition? Um, many say is holding back this democratization of one's health. Right? Um, we we talk about you know sometimes is the private health side. The, the leading in innovations. Uh, my own personal opinions might disagree to that. I think there's tremendous effort and work coming out from the public health, but should there even be this sort of two sides of the coin? And do you see, I guess, in the way that Karen just outlined, 
the various different approaches that are quite possible now that is, is public and private sort of the sort of obstacle in this? And should there be incentivizations, et cetera, being put into place? Uh, so, so Rohit, uh, again, right, I would, I would just want to, again, rephrase uh, the word competition between public and private because, uh, you know, I, I'm in a market which is fully public, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I was in a market previously, which was mostly in Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, as well as India, which was, you had public system working in parallel with the private system and, 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 and I think they had their roles to play. So that's how, that's how I see it. Now, from my perspective, there are initiatives, integration standards, regulations, incentives already in place for organizations to share the data sets between each other. But why the progress is slow is because you don't, you know, there's so, so many reasons, right? It could be competition, it could be lack of data sharing agreements. Uh, it could be, you know, lack of technologies. Karen just mentioned uh, fire standards and your API based integration would be more. But at this point, there are many markets where you don't have the digital health tools and technologies which are able to share information with each other. So, so it could be that kind of a challenge that we are grappling with as well. So here is again, I mentioned this earlier, here is where I see a, a different trend, which is which is going to shape when it comes to democratization of the patient's health information to provide that patient with personalized care, uh, which will be an alternate care setting. Now, I, I mentioned this previously as well, where I strongly see an emergence of health ecosystems, which will be based on a technology infrastructure, uh, and this will be really, really successful in creating that ecosystem environment for a patient to seek care. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's take let's take a Prato or Ping and Good Doctor, or let's take uh, you know Halodoc from Indonesia. Now, now the platform is providing a primary care physician. They are providing a lab. They are providing a delivery of the medication to the patient's uh, you know, place of residence or uh, preferred place of acceptance of medication. They're also providing to an extent uh, a transportation service because they have partnered with those ecosystem providers. And that's how I see uh, exchange of information for, for providing these care points. And these partners will start exchanging the patient information and form a layer that is where most of the most of the big data analytics most of the uh, you know tools will be built to even more personalize the care for a particular patient in their own private setting so so that's how i see it and that's where more personalized experience to consumers will start shaping up we are we are seeing if you see the numbers excess of 300 million for practo uh, in terms of usage i would i would say even more for the china based thing and good doctor and, and others as well. So, so that's a kind of a experience and that's a kind of a user base that these pro platforms are providing. And I, I see a clear, clear direction in which that these providers might play a much more bigger game in exchanging all the information and then providing that layer of a personalized uh, experience to the consumers. Now, here is where as a public sector uh, associate, the way I see is that the governments and the payers and the other partners who are enabling that system have to play a much larger role to build those policies, to build those enabling environment because, because this is the model which I see really, really coming, uh, coming forward. And, uh, and I, think, I think for the partners, they have to come together, align on the common goals, align on the objective from, from a public health care setting and, and, and start working on those various uh, enabling environment uh, attributes. So that's that's my that's my point uh, on a point of view on, on on this particular aspect. You know, I always think in my head that there must be an insurance CEO waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, saying, "Personalized health? Oh no! How are we going to manage this?" I mean, this this entire discussion, um, and hopefully our listeners have been keeping up with the variety of opportunities, uh, seem to outweigh clearly the challenges, but. How uh, would, will, let's say, payers, insurers particularly, um, manage or keep up with the pace of this? We've talked about data in seconds. We've talked about the multitude of almost forming a 
full AI sequence of where health uh, uh, projections and you know, innovations can be, uh, managing it in and out of the hospital, how would insurers keep up with the innovation in technology in ensuring that they still have, I guess, skin in the game? I mean, any, any thoughts to that, anyone? Yeah, happy to uh, take that, Rohit. So um, as Rajiv has been saying all along, right, uh, I love the fact that he, you know, sticks to the health ecosystem. I really like that because he's right that that is where you're going to uh, have that patient experience. And so in this whole ecosystem, I think the payers are somebody who are the smarter ones. And payers, you know, there are two types. One is the public payers, which is like the government. And then uh, you have the private payers like your you know, typical insurance companies. So I would say that um, both have woken up because they realize that even before others that, hey, you know, this population is gonna be aging and I'm gonna have a greater payout as the world progresses. I need to assess my risk. I need to build my models, not like my traditional models, but I need to have models that address specific issues like you know a typical example was COVID right um, so COVID nobody ever covered in I mean communicable diseases were never covered under insurance but now you see suddenly you have even for your ART tests you have insurance coverage right reimbursement uh, so I think payers are playing a beautiful role and I'd probably um, talk a little bit about both private and public so if you look at private payers uh, as I shared earlier as well Rohit that they're coming in in a space to reduce the payout they're looking at preventive care. They're lo looking at wellness uh, from the health perspective, right? How do I stop somebody from even getting into that funnel of sickness? How do I kind of, you know, preempt them? Are there nudges I can give them? Are there incentives? You know, um, to some of the private payers, you will see if you walk 10,000 steps, then they reward you with a $5 coupon or this, then there's competition. So they, they try the level best to kind of keep the individuals based on each, like what Rajiv said, their personal a patient's experience, they want to keep them out of that, right? So that's one. The second is, of course, with the provider, their relationship with the provider is very close. How do I ensure lesser fraud? Mm -hmm. How do I lower the cost of care, right? So uh, uh, a fever could be treated at $50, can be treated at $500. How do I use data to find these outliers? Which are the doctors who are prescribing more than is required? Very interesting example, right? I don't know, Rajiv, if you will agree, but, and I don't know how it is in Canada, but you know, when I came to Singapore about 10, 12 years ago, you have a stomach upset, they will give you like a tablet or an antacid and you're gone. But now I think a few weeks ago, um, I took my son and I was amazed. There are like five medications. You have a, for the stomach upset, then you have an antacid, you have a charcoal, and you have uh, some, some other fever, and then this you take on my, one day, this you take on the third day. So the billing increases and you end up with a double amount of money. So this is where I think payers come in the traditional way and say, what are the benchmarks that we would like to lay out? And we wanna understand why is the cost far beyond that? Of course, there are pluses and minuses because sometimes each case is not the same. So you might need, and that's where care can be insufficient if the payers take that stand. So I would say, private payers are stepping up. And they're also like in Japan, you have an amazing public payer system, right? But there are gaps. Uh, they won't do this, they won't do health screening, they won't do care of uh, childbirth. So this is where private payers are sniffing and saying, are there loopholes that we can plug in? You know, So that's one area. Then if you look at public payers, especially during this whole COVID time, right? Uh, Rajiv, I don't know about the Canada numbers, but in Singapore, government actually gave payouts. They said, depending on your economic status, you will get a relief. They call it as a relief. In my eyes, I look at, I look at it as insurance reimbursement. You know, it's like, okay, you're in the dumps. Here's a bit of relief I'm giving you. So governments realize that in their, uh, not just health, but other conditions as well, they will have to give out these payouts, mm -hmm. right? So how about including them into the whole social insurance package? And yes. that's where... Uh, you'll be surprised that I think the last just two and a half, three years, we've been talking to a lot of governments on how do I, uh, you know, find a way to manage my costs because it's going to increase. And now thanks to COVID, I'm going to deal with communicable diseases as well. I thought aging was the only problem. Now I have this other burdens and they say every six to seven years, there's going to be a new virus coming out. So mm -hmm. I think 
Public payers are now stepping up. Their aim is to reduce fraud, be able to control costs. Private payers are saying, where is the incentive that I can pop up or I can go in areas where public payers would dare not intervene and kind of, you know, capture um, uh, use cases over there. So I think it's an interesting game where in the gaps that, you know, healthcare providers, hospitals have left, you have public payers and private payers coming and there's no competition there because you know, strength is always with the public payers. They just don't have the reach. Private payers have the reach. So it's like a beautiful marriage between both to help you know, cover uh, the entire uh, patient population. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Rajiv, uh, any, any thoughts to that? No, no, I, I, I agree with what Karen is saying. I, I'm, again, in my mind, I'm just imagining uh, a three-year horizon, right? A three-year horizon, uh, you have a ecosystem leader like or, 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 or the integrator, like a Practo, uh, partnered with a ICACI Lombard and, uh, and, and offering a, a, a outcome-based treatment, right? So if you have a fever, go to a provider. So your provider is this, you have your lab, uh, you have your medication and your fee is a fixed amount of 600 rupees. Or a ten dollar, right? So, so an outcome-based model where a payer does not grapple with those complexities. At the same time, it is benefiting, obviously benefiting the patient, and everybody in the ecosystem is financially rewarded and partnered. So, so your patient's experience increases significantly by 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 accepting those services. At the same time, everybody as part of the ecosystem is, is, is aligned uh, from business model perspective, from a financial reward perspective. So, so that's how that's how would be an ideal state. So, so uh, let's hope for that. Let's hope for that indeed. Yeah, and Rohit, just yes. one this thing. So uh, Rajiv fully agree on that ecosystem and you're right, like, you know, like Fracto and all coming in, they have their own incentives that they're coming in, so they're happy. But I think finally, uh, what you mentioned earlier, I love that that it has to be centered around the patient, you know? Yes. So we have three types, the way I see it. One is where no data is shared. The patient has no clue about that data. The one that we are talking and we are in right now is where, you know, the, for example, the uh, players, ecosystem players like Practo, MyDoc, they do share their data. So the patients, when I say share the data, the patient can actually look at their reports and their medications and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and the third, but it's still silo, right? Because they only have from MyDoc or from, they do not have the rest of the medical records. So it's still in, in not optimal. The optimal one, when you, you know, turn it on its head and say, patient will have access to all data and patient will decide who should view what. Mm -hmm. Look at it this way. So it's like we did it, right? For COVID vaccination, what did we do? You, whether I travel to Canada today or Rajiv comes to Singapore, you still need your vaccination certificate, right? And what is that? That is Rajiv and Karen are able to see their own information when they were vaccinated, with what were they vaccinated, any COVID episode, and you can travel anywhere in the world. And that's how it should be with healthcare. So we should have access to all our data, whether it's images, whether it's smart wearable data, continuous monitoring, whether it's, my, whether it's the EMR, we should have full access and we decide Today, I'm going to meet Procto and I'm going to give them access to this data. And it's possible through blockchain, through fire, you can have different, um, different players of the ecosystem viewing different parts. But the beauty is that whether Rohit today is doing a podcast in Singapore or tomorrow he's in the US or Canada, he has all his medical records at his fingertip. And whether he needs it anywhere or he just needs to flash it somewhere, he has it. So that is where then the whole patient experience becomes amazing. Uh, and with proper privacy and compliance in place. And we've seen that. I loved it when for the COVID vaccine, we could just travel anywhere. I mean, some did have paper still, but it can easily be digitalized as well. So look forward to those days and probably we might have a different podcast then, Rohit. <laughs> That's right. Version 3.0. Um, you know, it's interesting hearing this, that uh, for, for all the time that we've been in this industry, it's always been about health literacy and how health literacy has been either one of the biggest barriers or challenges and hearing this discussion it's almost like saying if digital nativity uh, is not equalized to health literacy um, a lot of what we just talked about is going to be a challenge um, and and this i think refers closely to work that who particularly on non-communicable disease is focused on 
And that is fundamentally this sort of inequity in access. So we all know about inequity of access to health and health access and so on, which is clearly an issue still. But the inequity of digital access, um, a large portion of uh, not just our region, but several parts of the world, populations don't have equitable access to neither the necessary health services nor the bandwidth. And I think as you've just both been discussing that sometimes having that bandwidth can make all the difference. Uh, it can augment the health experience. Now, how does this then sort of come into play with what we've just touched upon? Um, and do any of these innovations either in North America, here in Asia, uh, start to maybe look at this as a potential uh, area of focus? Raji, would you want to have a go? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, sure. Uh, Rohit, I think I think this is this is a very very important point, right? Uh, you you mentioned uh, digital nativity, but on a lighter note, I would want to also add a term here, which is which I learned recently, which is digital immigrant, where you know uh, people who are who are born slightly uh, prior in 1980s and before that, so they have moved into this this digital native uh, scheme of things. So, 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 so. You know, when it comes to uh, digital nativity, where we are seeing a hope, at the same time, there is a challenge with health equity, especially around digital health equity with the changing scenario post-COVID. Now, now, everyone enjoys a level of literacy uh, and access to digital health, but at the same time, there is there are gaps. Uh, not everybody has access to those resources. Not everybody has access to those technology and tools. Now, here is where we need to ask the question, right? Uh, especially from the providers from in the in the industry, in the in the in the respective places of decision making, whether the technologies today are they available to support, you know, lower technology like a minimum broadband access. Uh, for example, do they work in the offline mode? Because most of the parts of Asia are, are right now not having that kind of connectivity. The second is, are those tools and technologies, are they linguistically and culturally, can they, can they, can they align to the local nuances? Because the market is so diverse. People are coming from different cultural and linguistic background. Does it also accommodate payment parity? You know, there are out-of-pocket payments some people prefer maybe DBS Payla or Paytm. Some people prefer uh, online transfer. So is there payment parity in those digital health technologies and tools? And last but not the least, again, coming to personalized health, are those clinical workflows and, and uh, you know, treatment pathways aligned to local personal preferences and, uh, and, and, and uh, geographically uh, aligned uh, places. So, so, so we need to ask those questions in the industry. Now, now, now these, are, these are aspects which we need to think when it comes to health equity in the region. Now, when it comes to, I, I can probably give you some example of how we look at health equity, especially around digital health equity in Canada. Now, of course, the, the market is at a different maturity stage. The market is differently funded as well. So, there might be limited comparison, but 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 the way we are seeing digital health equity and health equity at, at a broader scale is, is is around three things, right? So from, from, from our market perspective, I think health equity is part of our culture. Now, when it comes to when it comes to any organization, any initiative, health equity and equity as a as a, as a concept, as a as a discussion point is absolute must i think i think i think from from my experience working in asia and working here equity is something which is uh, given every 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 topic every discussion equity will be discussed so culturally it is very ingrained second is there are there are now evaluation organizations that are coming in place especially in canada for example recently we have set up a canadian network for digital health evaluation which is specifically set up to to, to evaluate the various digital health tools that are being implemented in the market around, uh, around, around the different asks of which equity is, is one of the key asks. So again, if you, if you see equity is again uh, considered really, really important and that's why this organization come in place. And third, but not the least is implementation. So any project, be it a large scale digital health program or a, or a small 
setup of a of a tool in a, in a in a small setup. Implementation also considers a lot around the health equity. Now you can see the number of job postings online where the title says health equity manager or health equity analyst, which are essentially resources and associates who are working on these projects. So you can understand the level of importance that we give to this particular uh, area. And, and, and that's how, that's how the, the, the overall market is shaping up. And, uh, and, and that's something which, which needs to be you know, looked at if any of the other markets in the Asia is also looking at ingraining more uh, you know, equity-based aspects within their programs, digital health initiatives, and so on and so forth. So that's something which which which, which I see uh, really really uh, important for us here. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, Erin, what would be your thoughts to that? So the, I think there were two uh, questions around that in terms of health equity with technology. I think Rohit, I, my my take is that <clears throat> technology is a leveler, right? Technology does not know who's rich, who's poor, who has, who has not. So my take on that is that it's going to be a leveler and we're going to be better off. But I want to focus a little bit more on the digital health equity and skilling as well. So one of the things that you rightly mentioned in the beginning is that there is a severe skill shortage, right? Because as we get into this whole digitalization thing, can we even pull it off? You know, you have a big ship, but we don't have equipped uh, with good pilot, with good sailors or uh, captain. So one of the things that we've seen, and this is so apt because now because of COVID, um, you see, it's a chicken and egg, right? So because of COVID, uh, you'd need to digitalize and because you need to digitalize, you need the people, but you know, healthcare was already very burdened and there were very few people. And now with all these, uh, you know, roadblocks in terms of, you know, you, you can't move geographical barriers. Like you can't go into this country. You can't lockdown is here, partial lockdown, semi lockdown, people couldn't move. And people like, at least in Singapore, we depend a lot on uh, workers, uh, healthcare workers from outside coming in and helping. So it was a, it was, I can say a nightmare. And so one of the asks that we've had from many governments is around skilling, hey, help to skill up our people so that we can implement these projects. Because many times when you don't have those skills, then tech companies like ours have to come in and step in, right? But the whole idea, the mission of Microsoft is that every organization is going to become a software company and you've got to have your own skilling. So I want to share a few things that I think Microsoft did really well and I benefited personally a lot. So we have things like ESI where we kind of in a very uh, low cost fashion, we actually help are uh, the people, the, the workforce uh, in, the, in the client's place to skill up. Um, and this is where LinkedIn learning comes in. You know, we do a lot of uh, learning through that. That's one. The other one is, uh, as what Rajiv rightly said, uh, you know, um, the people who are also skilled, you see that normally women and girls uh, are the percentages who are in the tech field are much lower. So we have something like coding for girls where we go and encourage them. There's a separate program, we give them projects. So that's to encourage that section of society as well. And the, the other thing is like, whatever it might be, imagine if you were to teach me C++, C++, it's gonna take ages, right? We don't have the time. So that's where technology comes in and says, hey, can I make it? And I think Rajiv, you alluded to that where low code, no code. So we have something like Power Apps where, you know, it's just like Lego blocks, you just kind of pick and you can make your app. Uh, and it's really easy so much so that even my 12 year old can quickly make a simple app. So I think that's also where technology can help by simplifying things, pre-building them so that you just put those things together and you have something uh, basic to run with at least, right? Like let's say patient uh, appointment booking, make a simple app and you have all your data points in. So that's another thing. But lastly, I think a growth mindset, because that is something that I love in Microsoft is that every day we have to learn. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you have to learn every day. And there are courses that force you to do it. They're compulsory training, you have to do it. But things change so fast in technology, um, as well as in healthcare, right? Because you're going to be using the technology to help your clients. And so you're forced to become from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. I know it all, do I need to learn it all? So that's where you then, irrespective of your age, and I think personally, I've benefited a lot because now every day I have to assign 32 minutes to an hour where I'm just reading up on what's the latest could be an area of interest but you're forced to learn because a lot of us whether it's technology or whether it's learning we stop learning 
I don't know about Canada, Rajiv, but in this part of the once you have a job and you're up there, then you know you're relaxed. So <laughs> no, that is not the way in Microsoft they push you. And that I think is a good way to kind of skill up yourself. Uh, governments are doing it because like in Singapore, you are the WSG, we're saying workforce uh, skilling. You're giving them credits and saying, take up a course. But it's interesting because everybody will have to have some digital uh, skilling uh, going forward. It's inevitable. Like even in schools now, they're doing coding, but the population in between, you know, not the younger one, but the older one will have to kind of skill up. Yeah, I think hearing this, I'm going to have to tell my son to reconsider his university choices and perhaps get into uh, more of the computer uh, learning than policy. But thank you so much. I, I think hearing from you both um, gives not just confidence, but a lot more uh, understanding and the uh, simplification, one can say, of a very complex uh, uh, discussion. Um, as we come up to the hour, um, this, this is our, as I said, the... Uh, uh, the beginning of a discussion. This is really something that's meant to um, create more dialogue, have people think more about these issues, and hopefully help our listeners who are in various different organizations in the academic side and government, etc., to um, have a have a yeah have a good source, have have a have a way to really just break this down and understand for themselves what it takes to build uh, strategies and programs for personalized health in particular. If I could ask, I guess there's a as, as, a, as a last uh, leave behind, um, uh, Rajiv and Karen, that what would be your takeaway? Um, hearing this discussion, your top line thoughts, I usually try and say, give it to me in a sentence, but that's okay. We, we can give it a couple of minutes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a complex one to try and do in a, in a, in a, in a minute, but um, what would be your viewpoint and what would you think our listeners should take away uh, from this last close to an hour of listening? Uh, Rajiv, why don't, I, why don't I start with you? Yeah, yeah sure, sure. So, so I will, I will, I will just, just bring a perspective back to the market, right? Where your Asian market is very heterogeneous. You have developed Asia, you have developing Asia and you have underdeveloped Asia. And, and why I say that is because the, the focus, the priorities of the government, the various stakeholders, slightly vary, uh, considering where the, where the market is in terms of the maturity stage. However, however, you know, uh, because, because we are living and we will live in a very digital native environment, and we are gonna see a lot of growth in technology adoption. I think for me, the three points that would be, would be really, really important for us to create a long-term sustainable healthcare environment ecosystem would be, one is deploy meaningful digital health technologies that will allow to create you know, clinical, operational, as well as financial value, but at scale. It should not just be an initiative to, to, to at, at a point of care and satisfy the requirement, but it has to be really meaningful digital health technology. The second is, uh, you know, Karen also alluded, alluded to this, Think of any initiative with patient in, in, the, in the center. Patient has to be the focal point. Patient has to be the center because, because, because that is where the maximum value is. That is where the maximum benefit and outcome and impact is. And, and last, last but not the least, all these ecosystem partners have to come together, align on common goals, align on what are the local government's priorities, what are the local regulations, because that is what is going to give them success. So, 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 so these are the, my three takeaways and, and, and that's how I'm seeing the market shaping up. Thanks, Rajiv. Karen. Yeah, so I'll probably take off from where Rajiv left. So you see regulators are always gonna play catch up. So um, I would, if I can say, leave them behind because one of the missions that Microsoft also has is to also educate um, uh, policymakers and explain how technology works. Now, I wouldn't say that technology is perfect, but you need to <clears throat> push the boundaries, right? We never had a Facebook, but look at it now. All of us, the first thing we do when we wake up is to look at you know, what's been the load. So I would say, take the challenge. Um, finally, we all wanna live longer. We wanna live better. And interoperability is going to be the way. There's no way out. You know, either you do it through fire or you do it through blockchain. So my final thoughts are interoperability is what it's gonna be. So if people are really scared to say that, you know, it might just bomb, we have very interesting sandbox environments we can build, right? So you pilot an idea, see how it works, 
you're not uh, ruining your normal day-to-day -day running. Use sandbox environments, experiment, and see what works beautifully. Because we do see the laggards, we do see the first movers, right? If you look at, we were talking about payers, and we've seen that private payers are first movers. They've already moved away from, you know, oh, I don't want these the systems that don't talk to each other. We, the discussions we nowadays have is, give us API-based services. I want everything to be interoperable. So they're already moving ahead. And I think that's where our public payers should kind of move on and say, hey, let's experiment. If this works well, let's take the next step. And even within the public system, I have seen, you know, um, those who are movers and shakers, they're willing to take that leap forward. They may fail one time, they're successful two times. But I think that's where we need to loosen up a bit and say, the old way of looking at healthcare is over. We, if we don't let go and move to the next step and use things like, oh, privacy, compliance, and those are all very valid, but we do have technology to take care. And so I think what we need as humanity and community is to take that bold step forward and say, let's experiment. Let's see what's the best way forward. Uh, and we have, and technology always does, always plays along, right? I mean, when you need something, when there's a gap, technology always finds some solutions or some innovations. And I think that's how healthcare and innovation and technology should go hand in hand. And on those sage words, we come to the close of this episode. Uh, thank you to all our listeners who've been following and giving some very, uh, I think, important feedback as well. Uh, we love hearing from you, and I think that makes all this so much more worthwhile. Again, I'd like to thank our guests today, uh, Rajiv and Karen. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and at two very different time zones. So, so thank you for that as well. Um, you can follow us on our RSS and Spotify channels, or you can see us over at uh, www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. Uh, we love to hear from you and from all our listeners. And if you have any feedback for our uh, guests at any point in time, uh, do just let us know. Uh, it's always great uh, hearing from you. Thank you again and see you all very soon.